Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Aaron hates Luke again. Hey, Luke. Hey, man. I'm going to give you an option here. There was a series that ended 30 years ago this week and another one that started. I want to know if you had to be on one of these shows. It has to exist for the rest of your career on your IMDb profile. I want to know which one you Okay. Would okay. Yeah. So on May 19th, 1991, we saw the series premiere of Knight Rider 2000. Oh. Hang on. And yeah. on May 25th, 1991, we saw the series finale of The Monsters Today. The reboot of the Munsters. Oh, obviously, I would love to be on the Munsters. <laughs> I mean, it's it's obvious that you would want that. I don't think that's that what I, I would. would pick. That, yeah, I hated yeah, yeah. the Munsters. That I would. Today. Oh, really? I, I loved would, the I original. Play, oh, for sure. I don't remember the Munsters today, but I would love to play Herman Munster. Oh wow! Speaking of, did you hear that Rob Zombie is doing a movie version of the Munsters? No. But I don't really follow Rob Zombie too much. Is it going to be like a huge Rob Zombie fan? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm kidding. I'm actually kind of depressed about it. But did you audition? No. You know, he has like his crew that he puts in everything. I can't say that I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the House of a Thousand Corpses fan, or I know that he you makes movies. As, you strike me as like a Devil's Rejects kind of guy. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'm going to go see if I can add it on your IMDb that you were in the oh, Munsters please. today. That I was, that I was Eddie Munster in, yeah. in the Munsters today. <laughs> that's like my dream to have been Eddie Munster as a child. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's weird. Okay. Hey, I'm going to start the episode. <laughs> okay. Go get him. Uh, see you, man. <laughs> Bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 19, Finales, Feminism, and Imaginary Friends. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, May 25th, 1991. It's funny looking back. I remember thinking we had a lot to cover last week on 30 Pop. I was so young, so naive. Because honestly, compared to this week in 30-year-old pop culture news, last week was nothing. So buckle up, friends. We've got some serious ground to cover today. Enough so that I gave honest consideration to dividing this week up into two episodes. But ultimately, I decided it'd be better to really relive this week in 1991. It was jam-packed then, so it'll be jam-packed now. Welcome. Let's get into it. For starters, we had new number ones on all the Billboard charts we track on this show. The new number one album for its first and only week, interrupting what would have been a three-week run for Georgia rock band R.E.M., was Michael Bolton's Time, Love, and Tenderness. I discussed this album a couple weeks back on episode 15 of this season. 
To summarize, I thought this album was incredibly lame back then, as was my older brother for owning it, but I've since seen the light and can today fully acknowledge and appreciate Bolton's unique vocal and musical badassery. I love R.E.M., and while their album, Out of Time, was more than worthy of a long run at the top of the Billboard 200, Bolton also fully deserved this career highlight. On the website besteveralbums.com, which I just discovered this week, Time, Love, and Tenderness is ranked in the top 50,000 albums of all time, which actually doesn't sound that impressive, I guess. The chart I'm referring to aggregates album positions across over 46,000 other, quote, best album ever charts to determine the overall bests. It may be a bit skewed, though, as three of the top ten albums, including two of the top five and the number one spot, all belong to Radiohead. Now, don't get me wrong, Radiohead is an amazing band, but Michael Jackson's Thriller is listed at number 81, and the original motion picture soundtrack to Breakin' doesn't even appear at all. So, something is clearly off. Anyway, yeah, Michael Bolton. Moving on. The new number one song on the Hot 100 chart this week in 1991 belonged to, guess who, Mariah Carey, once again, with I Don't Wanna Cry. This was Mariah's fourth and final single, at least in the United States, from her self-titled debut, each of which made it to number one on the Hot 100 chart. Regardless, she's never really liked this song, or at least not since she recorded it. Apparently producing it was a bit of a relational nightmare, and the song was, for all intents and purposes, ruined for Carrie. Although I'm sure she still found the will inside to deposit the royalty check she received for all its commercial success. And rightfully so. New to the top of the hot R&B and hip-hop chart 30 years ago this week was Keith Washington's Kissing You. I had never heard this song before, like, right now, and I wish I had. Obviously, he has a very different voice, but this feels very much like a song Michael Jackson would have released. And as a lifelong, diehard fan of Michael's music, I consider that a high compliment. This song was nominated for a Grammy and won a Soul Train Music Award in 1992. Washington had a bit of success beyond this single, but nothing major, unfortunately. The top rap song in the country this week in 1991 belonged to scene newcomer and Ice Cube protege Yolanda Whitaker, a.k.a. Yo-Yo, with the fantastic, albeit ridiculously titled, You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo. 
Yo-Yo is, in my opinion, a very important artist in the history of hip-hop. At a time when female MCs were still mostly treated as novelty acts and had to hyper-sexualize their images and lyrical content to get much mainstream attention, Yo-Yo consistently spoke out against the sexism and misogyny that was and is so prevalent in the industry. Her strength, intelligence, and artistic prowess were on full display and demanded that she be taken seriously by her peers. She's had a fair amount of success over the course of her career, but she also paved the way for a number of other artists, especially female artists, to enjoy even more success. She deserves a lot of respect. You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo would hold the top spot on the hot rap chart for four consecutive weeks, which is one of the longest runs by a female rap artist we've ever seen on the show. Second only, if I'm not mistaken, to salt and Peppa's eight-week run in early 1990 with Expression. The number one song on the Hot Country chart 30 years ago for its only week was Doug Stone's In a Different Light. Just the way I saw you last night. This was the first of eight number one singles over the course of Stone's career, seven of which, like this song, held the spot for just a single week. This is, if I'm not mistaken, the only song of his, or probably anyone else's, about being in a secret workplace romance with the office wallflower, a theme far too often overlooked by modern-day troubadours. Two other little bits of music news from this week in 1991 before we move on. On May 20th, the living legend that is Paul McCartney released his album entitled Unplugged, the official bootleg, making him the very first of a long list of artists to release an album of their live performance on the MTV series Unplugged, a list that includes the likes of Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Eric Clapton, Lauryn Hill, Mariah Carey, Rod Stewart, and, I mean, like... A lot of other people. Amazing artists, amazing performances. Then on May 25th, 1991, the Billboard 200 chart began incorporating electronically monitored sales data provided by a service called Nielsen SoundScan. SoundScan had begun recording this data in March of 1991, but its impact was most powerfully felt after this incorporation by Billboard. This is actually pretty interesting. Whenever we talk about albums going gold, platinum, or diamond, We're actually not exactly talking about the number of albums sold. We're referring to the number of albums shipped. Some of those albums would have likely remained on the shelves of the stores that ordered them. SoundScan provided hard data about what customers were actually purchasing. Incorporating that information into the Billboard 200 chart allowed artists within more obscure genres to get more traction and exposure on that chart than was previously possible. Like, for example... Alternative rock, which was not terribly well-known in those days, but would soon come to define the 90s in the hearts and minds of many. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and the throes of bands they influenced rose to prominence largely because of this, 
the beginning of what came to be known as the SoundScan era, an era that, for all intents and purposes, died with the advent of Napster and eventually streaming audio services like Spotify and Apple Music. Today, it's far less common for an artist to achieve a platinum certification, even if their album is being streamed literally billions of times. It's so fascinating to think about how different the musical landscape would be today had the SoundScan era not existed. How many genres of music wouldn't even exist today had SoundScan, by way of the Billboard charts, not created a lane for them? Anyway, I'd love to produce a whole new podcast exploring that, but as I mentioned, we've got a lot of ground to cover here today, so I'll get focused. In sports news this week in 1991, basketball legend Michael Jordan was awarded his second of five career league MVP awards, unsurprisingly. I don't care what anyone says. LeBron is great. Kobe was great. Jordan was the greatest. If there were ever such a thing as an all-time league MVP, there is no question who would be most deserving. And in my humble opinion, if a similar award existed for basketball shoes, Jordan would win that one too. On May 25, 1991, at the Metropolitan Sports Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, in their first Stanley Cup Finals appearance, the Pittsburgh Penguins beat the Minnesota North Stars 8-0 for a 4-2 series win. I'm sure all of that means something to someone, but I won't pretend to be that person. Now, I've been telling you for weeks about the amazing summer of movies that we had ahead. And as if FX2 and What About Bob weren't good enough... This week in 1991, we got a lot of new movies in theaters, as is always the case on Memorial Day weekend. The new top earner at the box office on this, its opening weekend, was the Ron Howard film Backdraft, starring Kurt Russell, Robert De Niro, and Justin Bieber's uncle-in-law, William Baldwin. This movie was a very big deal at the time, but I'm not going to linger because it will remain at the top of the box office next week. I promise to come back to it. The second highest earner at the box office this week was What About Bob, of course. At number three was another new release, this one starring Bruce Willis as its title character, Hudson Hawk. Bruce Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, tough guy. And business (laughs) is booming. I was afraid you weren't going to drop by. Hudson Hawk. That excites me. Check, please. The best cat burglar that ever lived. I didn't want to do it. All I wanted was a cappuccino. But he can't retire. Maybe nobody told you. I quit stealing. If he wants to keep on living. This is a brand new tuxedo! Watch your step. Hold your breath. Hang on for dear life. And catch the hawk. Good plan, Junior. Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, Hudson Hawk. Sounds like a party. This movie was a colossal failure, commercially speaking. It's grossed a total of $17.2 million to date, nearly half of which was made its opening weekend, but was produced on an estimated budget of $65 million. When noted critic Mark Kermode informed actor Richard E. Grant that he actually really liked it, Grant described the film as, quote, a stinking pile of steaming hot donkey droppings, and called Kermode an idiot. Grant was in the film, if that tells you anything. It did not do well. In fourth place at the box office this weekend in 1991 was the exponentially more successful new release from director Ridley Scott, starring Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, and Brad Pitt. Thelma and Louise. 
Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, I've not told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning. I'm sorry, darling. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma, is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Did you see his butt? <laughs> Thelma, have you lost your mind? Woo! I'm uh, Investigator Hal Slocum, Arkansas State Police. You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe you got a few too many parking tickets. Tell uh, what happened. You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever pulled a stunt like this, but if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. What? Boys, shoot the radio. The police radio, Louise. Got it. Thelma and Louise. How do you like the vacation so far? <laughs> we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, Mama Cedar. This was the fifth and to date most recent film to receive two nominations for Best Actress, with both Davis and Sarandon ultimately losing out to Jodie Foster for her role in The Silence of the Lambs which is mostly unsurprising as Silence of the Lambs won every major award that year. The only exception being Best Original Screenplay, which Thelma and Louise did win, probably because Silence of the Lambs was an adapted screenplay. This film was also nominated for Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing, so it's at least a little surprising to me that it was in fourth place at the box office its opening weekend, behind Hudson Hawk. It honestly probably deserves a lot more airtime on this show, but we still have so much else to cover. So I'll have to try to find my way back to it on another episode if possible. At number five, 30 years ago this week, also on its opening weekend, was John Candy, Maureen O'Hara, and Ali Sheedy's comedy, Only the Lonely. When's the last time you were on a date? Two, three months ago. Try nine, Danny. Hey, who's counting? The husband-to-be. I'm not carrying this guy down six flights of stairs, I'll tell you that right now. Oh, Ain't no way I'm going to clean that up. Sometimes it is not good to be a cop. The bride-to-be. Did you mean him to look like Clark Gable? Yeah. He's a a dead ringer. I didn't mean dead like that. I don't mean dead. You know what I meant. Uh, He's got a girl. The mother who won't let it be. Who died and left you an opinion? Rose, I know you realize it's the 90s. I'm just not sure you realize it's the 1990s. Reasons why you can't go out with me on Saturday. You're seeing somebody else. No. Gotta leave your options open, Danny. You're getting your legs waxed. No. Sample some of the other flavors. You have to lube your car? No. I'll see you at seven. I hope you don't mind coming here. I wanted to bring you somewhere special on our first date. For Danny Muldoon and Teresa Luna, love is in the air. Yeah! See, I just got lucky in there with a girl. That's not what you're thinking. She does everybody in there. 
not in that way. Daddy? Oh my God, it's my mom. Come on, hurry up. Over there, over there, over there. And mother <gasps> is in between. Mom, promise me you'll be on your best behavior. Where are her breasts? What? She's got no breasts. Uh -huh. Well, it's just in the neighborhood, and I thought I'd drop by. But before they can tie the knot. I'll be down in a minute and make you some breakfast. Oh, that'll be nice. He has to untie the apron strings. I'm 38 years old. I don't need this. Only the lonely. John Candy. I haven't kissed a girl I wasn't related to in a long time. Ali Sheedy. Are we ever going to be alone? Maureen O'Hara. You haven't heard my side of the story. James Belushi. She's just playing hard to get. And Anthony Quinn. She's been hard to get for 20 years. That's, that's really hard to get. Only the lonely. From John Hughes and Chris Columbus comes a comedy for anyone who's ever had a mother. Regrettably, I have no memory of ever having seen or even heard of this movie. A fact I intend to remedy in short form. But I did find some interesting details worth sharing. First of all, the film is written and directed by the great Chris Columbus, who had another film in theaters this week in 1991. Still in 11th place at the box office, appearing in over 900 theaters across the country, Home Alone. Still holding its own, bringing in nearly $2 million on Memorial Day weekend. Whoever it is that goes to the theater in late May to see a Christmas movie, or in this case, the best Christmas movie there is, these are my people. And even more so, the folks who were still seeing it a month later when it remained in or near the top 10 its final weekend in theaters. Anyway, speaking of Home Alone, Only the Lonely also featured in minor roles brothers Macaulay and Kieran Culkin, marking the third straight year that Macaulay had acted alongside John Candy, starting with Uncle Buck in 1989, in which he, once again, played Candy's nephew. Another interesting bit of trivia about Candy from this film when he learned that producers had not budgeted to have a trailer on set for his co-star, acting legend Maureen O'Hara, and sensed that they would show so little respect for someone so deserving, he gave her his trailer. Because Candy was a huge star at the time, producers responded by finding the budget for an additional trailer. This was Maureen O'Hara's first feature film in over 20 years. In fact, she'd long since retired and moved to St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Columbus wrote the script with her in mind, though, and had to track her down just to get a copy in her hands. She immediately loved the script, but wouldn't agree to be a part of the film until she met John Candy. Thankfully, the two hit it off and quickly formed a deep bond, and she signed on immediately. I'm gonna have to find this movie and watch it. Another new release that just turned 30, one which I've seen many times coming in sixth place at the box office, was the wildly underappreciated Phoebe Cates' Rick Mayall comedy, Drop Dead Fred. Honey, why'd you call him Drop Dead Fred? Because that's his name, Daddy. Like many small children, Lizzie had an imaginary playmate. Drop Dead Fred is going to teach me how to cook today. Someone she could talk to. Sugar? Yeah. <gasps> Someone she could share with. Oh, Grandma Bun! Someone who would never let her down. No more Drop Dead Fred! Now Lizzie is all grown up. To us. And when her perfect life us. fell apart. Charles, I lost my money, my car, my husband. She didn't get mad. Drop dead Fred. She got Fred. Ah! No face! What, who dropped dead? Drop dead Fred is this imaginary friend that I had as a child, and he's back. 
And everybody has strange friends, even you must. But all mine are alive. Well, that's not saying much. <laughs> it's no wonder Charles left you. Haven't got a husband, got a stupid haircut. You see, you just don't know how to make a marriage work. Well, let's get Charles back then. I'll help you. Let's just behave ourselves. Get up. Oh, He's back. Yeah? Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing, except you're ruining my life. To show her, no matter how bad things look now, <laughs> they can always get infinitely worse. Drop Dead Fred was way out of control. Have I got him? Nobody there. It's because he's invisible. Idiot! I don't want an imaginary friend anymore. Right, that's it. I hate you. Ow! Goodbye forever. Drop Dead Fred. Ugh, what does that taste like? Every child should have one. Especially when she grows up. This, my friends, is a far more complex movie than it gets credit for being. On the surface, it's a silly slapstick comedy for kids loaded with childish insults and booger jokes. I watched it in theaters as a kid and loved it for exactly those reasons. But I rewatched it this week, fully expecting to hate it, and honestly loved it even more. Beneath the absurd, over-the-top exterior, this is the story of a young woman's self-actualization as her deeply codependent and emotionally abusive marriage to a cheating, misogynistic womanizer crumbles to pieces, all while navigating a strained relationship with her hyper-controlling perfectionist mother, who blames her for her own marriage ending. It's a story about remembering who you are, about coping with and overcoming the difficulties that come with becoming an adult. And I don't think I'm overthinking this. I believe this was exactly the film's intent. The slapstick ridiculousness was just candy coating. This movie deserves to be remembered well. And while it was relatively successful, grossing about twice its tiny budget of $6.7 million, I'd have loved to see it make even more of a return. The last theatrical release from this week in 1991, coming in seventh place at the box office its opening weekend, was the Walt Disney Studios' family-friendly drama, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. What's your secret wish? What did you always want to be? In every girl's life, there are dreams of adventure, of romance, of greatness. But Sonora had a special dream. Who are you? Your new diving girl. No, you're not. A diving girl has to be strong. A diving girl has to be brave, fearless, a showman. But I can do it, because I can do anything. Good. You can get out of here. I'm not going to leave until you give me a job. Go on, get. Have a good trip. She was ready to face the challenge, but not alone. There's the tower. The horses have to get hurt? Nope. It's the riders. Yeah, you really think you can do it, huh? Sure. If Dr. Carver ever gives me a chance. You can mount that horse while he's moving. I'll let you train to be a diving girl. Sonora would learn that a dream worth having... I can't do it. I know I can't. ...is worth fighting for. Ah, that girl! We did it, boy! All right, all right. He's doing good, though. But what she never expected... It's for you. ...was to find someone who would share her dream. Sonora, I love you. I just need a little more time. No, it's got to stop. I don't want you hurt. I have to do this. 
Let's do it just like we practice, right? What if I can't do it? You'll do it. When dreams take flight, wild hearts can't be broken. Say what you will about wild hearts. Horse legs can be broken, so it should go without saying that they should never be made to dive off 40-foot platforms into water tanks. Although in the film, the actual dive was only about 10 feet. Still, no more live-action high-diving horses, Disney. Leave that to Pixar. Now, I mentioned a bit of 30-year-old TV news at the start of the episode in the premiere of Knight Rider 2000 and the finale of The Monsters Today, two series that probably never should have been greenlit. But there were also a couple other finales to think about. First, on May 23, 1991, when the great Johnny Carson announced that he'd be retiring the following year from his long-tenured role as the host of The Tonight Show, a role he'd filled since October of 1962 and that he'd hand off to Jay Leno in May of 1992. After years of speculation, rumors, cocktail party conversations, and just plain old gossip, Johnny Carson has finally made it official. He is not going to stay on television forever. Johnny Carson made a surprise visit to Late Night with David Letterman last night. He confirmed rumors that next year would be his last year as host of The Tonight Show. It's just coming to an end, you know, next year. I, I, I've always wanted to be a shepherd. <laughs> Carson had made a more serious statement of his intent to leave earlier in the day at the NBC television station affiliates meeting. He said that his last broadcast will be May 22, 1992. NBC Entertainment President Warren Littlefield says he was not surprised by the announcement. We've been talking to Johnny a lot, and after 29 sensational years with NBC, it was Johnny's decision to say goodbye at the end of his 30th year. Then, on May 25th, 1991, we saw the series finale of a show that I thoroughly enjoyed throughout my youth, Out of This World, starring Maureen Flanagan as Evie Garland, a teenage girl who learns on her 13th birthday that A, her father, Troy, is an alien from the planet Antares, and B, she has the power to stop time by simply touching the tips of her pointer fingers together, which would be handy about now considering how long this episode already is. But... I had the tremendous pleasure this week of hopping on a call with Maureen to hear all about her experience working and growing up on the set of Out of This World, and what she's been doing since that series finale. It was such a treat. Here's our conversation. Maureen, welcome to 30 Pop. It is such a joy to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It was a pleasure to get your email. Of course. So we just passed the 30th anniversary of the series finale of Out of This World, which you start on as a kid. Time marches on, I guess, apparently. It does indeed. So you were like 12 or 13, right, when you started on this show? Yeah, I had been, um, I was discovered on the beach when I was almost 11, and I did a lot of commercials that year, some guest spots. I think I was on Highway to Heaven with a little trivia fact, Paul Walker. Oh, wow. And we were holding thawed seagulls okay. that were dead birds from, you know, toxic waste. That was in the storyline yeah. of Highway to Heaven. But the birds themselves were literally in the freezer mm. and brought to set and, and like thawing out for 
props. That's awful. I don't know if that practice is still in place in the uh, industry, but <laughs> Paul Walker, that's amazing. That's actually one of the things I noticed on your IMDb, the Highway to Heaven entry or whatever. And I was going to ask you about that because the other thing that was going on 30 years ago right now was Michael Landon had just announced that he had pancreatic cancer. Like we are coming up on the 30th anniversary of his passing, which is crazy to me. So I'm curious, what was that like working with Michael Landon? You know, he was so awesome. First of all, I grew up watching Little House on the Prairie. Course, I mean, a yeah. deep fan yeah. of Little House on the Prairie. And I had this opportunity to go in an audition and there he was. I had no idea he was going to be in the room with me and actually doing lines with me. It was It's such a wow. gift as an actor when you have an actor come in and do this stuff with you because no offense to casting directors or the assistance that they hire, but it's usually like, and I'm feeling really upset about it. What do you think? And then they're giving you nothing. Yeah. Like you literally have to conjure this from nothing. Yeah. And it makes the job of getting the job even harder. So he was there and he was smoking. Like he was a smoker. Really? Wow. Okay. I mean, I don't know why it was so shocking to me, but it was. Well, it's just not how you think of Charles Ingalls. You know, he seems like the picture of health. So. Or an angel, right? Yeah. Highly yeah. <laughs> and. True. He was a chain smoker and he was like full of energy and kind of like a Jiminy Cricket. Like I just see him like this light kind of, he was just super excited, very positive. And it was just like one of those moments in my career that I'll never forget. And he was a cool guy. He was just a cool guy. That's awesome. I love to hear that. That's how, you know, I watched recently his announcement on Johnny Carson because we just passed the 30th anniversary that he had, he made a sort of his final appearance on television was on Johnny Carson. I watched that whole interview and just really, really loved him because I haven't seen a ton of stuff that's not him playing Charles Ingalls. And so to see him sort of just be really funny, I, I just, I had no idea he was so funny and that he confronted that horrific disease with such like humor. You know, he was just amazing. So, okay. So you were discovered on the beach. You had done a little bit of acting and then how did you get to this particular role? Just kind of the traditional way. Uh, the, it was pilot season, which kind of doesn't exist anymore because of streaming, mm-hmm. but there was a season where you, you know, everyone auditions for all the pilots because they're launching it for the September gauntlet basically. And Went in and they just kept asking me back, kept asking me back until basically it got down to between me and one other girl. Mm-hmm. And I was again in the situation where Donna Pescal, who played my mom on mm-hmm. the show, I was on a stage at the Mary Pickford Studios with the producers and we were just doing the scene back and forth together. You know, she was checking me out to see if it was the right fit. And mm-hmm. the producers were seeing if we were the right fit. And I guess it was. That's awesome. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, because you never know with IMDb, the trivia that's on there, if it's true. But was the other actress that you were up against the girl that wound up playing Lindsay on the show? No. Okay, because I saw in there that she was at some point in the running for the role of Evie. But then they wound up writing her in as Lindsay. I will have to ask her because we're we're all still very good friends. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, dear, dear family friends. Like, wow. Those friends that you're like brothers and sisters, you know? So I'll have to ask Christina that if she was actually auditioning for the role of Evia. I, I've never heard her say that. I would have thought it would come up by now, but she wasn't in the final. She well, wasn't the I have final. found lots of things to not be true on IMDb, unfortunately. It's sort of like I Wikipedia, but... Okay, so you started the show when you were 12, 13? Yes, 13. And went until you were almost 18? 
I was 18. You were 18. That's amazing. So all of your teenage years, for the most part, you got to be doing this show. I would love to hear, you got to work with some amazing folks. I don't know how many people realize that Burt Reynolds was the voice of your dad. I know. Was he ever actually on set or was that just a thing that he sort of did remotely and... Because he was not in the credits, right? No, it was a strange thing. I worked with him. I would go to, we had to sing a song for an episode. So I got to go and hang out with Bert and do the song with him. But he would just go to the, you know, the VO booth, mm -hmm. and the post-production house. And he would just, you know, tear through any of them or something. And they just added in post. But well, we never saw him. There was a guy on set. His name was Troy, literally Troy, Troy yeah, in the box. So funny. Perfect. But he was the stand-in for any male characters, and he would sit off to the side and, and read. And then I think at some point it became the stage manager. I'm like, okay. how did the stage manager have to do double duty and become my dad? But yeah. That's how it often worked. That's amazing that they would go to the trouble of having Burt Reynolds uncredited play that part rather than just having someone there in the studio. I think that's amazing. So I've been watching a couple episodes to prep for this conversation. And uh, one of the things that I sort of, you know, watching it as an adult, I was like, man, you had to really do a lot of one, there, there had to have been some technology being used or something that was pretty revolutionary, I would think at the time to do sort of the, the frozen, you know, things frozen in midair and the sort of things that you were having to interact with. I'm curious what that was like, like what technically was happening for you to do these very sort of imaginary moments? My experience was the most untechy thing. Ever. Really? Okay. There was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing shockingly you know, it wasn't like uh, mocap or, you know, CGI or anything like right, that. Right, yeah. Was, we had our stage manager who, you know, I'd do this with my fingers. I'm putting my fingers together, do, stopping time. And the stage manager would say, freeze. He'd just go freeze. And everyone would have to literally just hang out in a frozen, just like playing musical chairs or like some kid game. And then I'd act my heart out with the, you know, things frozen. And then as soon as I put my hands together and unfroze time, he would say unfreeze. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Okay. What about like the props though? I mean, I, there's like scenes where people are pouring drinks or things in it and it shows it, you know, and you're interacting with it and it's completely just a prop. So you can buy these online now. You can buy them anywhere. But at the time, I think they were statues, like made to look like real, you know, a spoon that had milk coming off of it mm -hmm. or, you know, and milk being poured out of a carton. And it was just a prop. It was a statue that they'd replace the real thing with. You know, think about it. It's a lot more work to do that and a lot more money. You have someone like making statues, like yeah. placing these things in. Things had to stay exactly the way they were. It was so, you know, much more time consuming on that end than it would be now. But that was it. Or they would probably do it in post and just figured out a way to cut around and freeze and then mm -hmm. probably put tape upon tape. I don't know. I don't That's know. Amazing. It wasn't that revolutionary. Yeah. Not I love how unimpressed you are with it today. Like my 12 year old self was just like mind blown by that. And even watching, you know, the pilot episode or whatever I was watching in so much of that, there's so many people who have to stay frozen for the whole episode, because for listeners who may have not seen it, you had the ability, as you said, to stop time by putting your fingers together. You discovered that in the first episode, and it's in the midst of this, your 13th birthday party. And so there's all of these actors, child actors, having to just be still for this entire, their entire role in the show. 
that struck me, like how long these people had to be really, really still. Because I assume those scenes took hours and hours to create. You know, they didn't because the way sitcoms work, it's a three camera show, sometimes four camera. You rehearse all week like a theater production. You spend the fourth day rehearsing it. It's called the tech rehearsal. So you're rehearsing with camera, with the sound guys, wardrobe. You're working out all these details. All the extras are now in place and everybody's rehearsing. And by the time you get to tape day, you just do the show twice. And Hmm. it's like doing a theater show. You might stop for technical issues if there's a boom in the shot or someone moves, you know, and we'll Mm -hmm. redo it. But they're just doing it for the scene. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's not what I would have guessed. That's amazing. And this was not with the live audience, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We would tape a show in the morning with no live audience. And that's kind of like your equivalent to a safety, what they call on a film set. Like, let's do another one for safety, just in case there was something wrong in the one take that was so great. So they do the safety version without any audio issues. And then the audience would come in and we'd do that evening. We'd do the one with a live audience. That's and then, awesome. you know, the funny thing I always learned, I learned was they still used canned laughter when you had an audience actually laughing. They blend the two together. I'm sure they're still doing this. Wow. There's something about we've trained an audience to hear it. And when you don't do it, it doesn't feel right. It's so weird. That is weird. So you had a couple of guest stars over the years who I would love to hear about if you have any memories of working with them. One being Mr. T, who was the biggest deal in the 80s. Do you remember working with Mr. T? Oh, yes. I love Mr. T. What was that like? He's the, again, coolest guy. Coolest guy. Humble and friendly and just easy to work with. I remember. So here's a story I do tell. That's really fun. So he, you know, known for all the gold, right? Mm -hmm. And he had, I noticed it wasn't like the whole thing. So I said, what's going on with, you know, your necklaces? Like, it doesn't look like you have it all. He said, you know, I can't walk around with all of that. It'll break my back. I mean, he was aware because he was a bodybuilder, you know, like he knew it was bad for his posture. He leaned in and he said, what I got around my neck is all fake. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, I've got the real stuff. He goes, it's a blend of real and fake. And I said, where's the real stuff? And he said, he pointed across the way and it was between two sets and there was a grocery bag, like a crumpled brown paper bag. And he goes, that's the real You're stuff. You're kidding me. No. And I went, come on. And he said, go look. And I went over and I swear to God, the gold necklaces were in there. Unbelievable. And he, and he put them on for the take. and That's incredible. I can't believe that. You know, I only know him as his persona. And so it's never dawned on me that he took his necklaces off at any point in his life. You know, he's only ever been (laughs) awake and wearing those necklaces in my life. So that's amazing. The other one I want to ask you about who we lost recently was Fred Willard, who I think is just a brilliant, brilliant comedian. And when I saw him on there, I was like, I've got to ask if there's at least memories of working with Fred Willard. You know, that was like the first season. And at the time, I didn't know who... Fred Willard was. Mm-hmm. He was just another actor in my realm. But it was only until my later years when I knew who Fred Willard was and thought again, I was like, this guy's a genius. I was like, why does this guy look so familiar to me? And it, you know, I went, I, he was on Out of This World. And of course, I looked back and I went, it is Fred. Like, I, it was amazing. I don't even think you'd see that on his IMDb website. Really? Like, okay. I, nobody 
it's either that it's so old or like they just never put it on there. I don't know. They were just taking the cash and they were like, let's not tell anyone we were on the show. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't really have memories of him except he was, he cracked jokes. He was fun to work with. And, you know, all the other adult actors really, you could tell they re- respected him. Of course, but yeah. To me, it really was just kind of another adult. Yeah. I wondered about that with the Burt Reynolds thing. I wondered if at that point in your life you knew who Burt Reynolds was or if it was just like, well, he's that's just some actor that does the voice of, you know. No, I definitely knew who Burt was. Okay. And I definitely had some butterflies when I went to go meet him. Not because he meant something to me, really. It was more like he was just a legend. Yeah. So tell me about your career after the show. The show ended you know, 30 years ago this week, what did you do from there? I know you're still sort of in the business, right? Like, but you're on more of a production side. Yeah. I'm behind the camera now. How did that, how did that happen over the course of your life? Well, honestly, I think my acting career, I was acting for 30 years. Yeah. Wow. Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Cause it's like, I'm not old enough to have, you know, that's like yeah. retirement age. Yeah. And Roles became few and far between. There's a kind of this cutoff age, especially for women, when they reach their early 30s. If you haven't become a star, if your name isn't still like a big deal, it's become more and more difficult with, you know, movie stars shifted and they started going into television. Back then, you were either a TV actor mm-hmm. Or film actor. And every TV actor tried to become a film actor. And every film actor never wanted to do TV. But then film actors got hip to the script and went, oh, that's where all the money is. Hmm. And there was a commercial strike, the famous commercial strike of 90 whatever and 96 or something. A lot of people were out of work. And so it kind of forced the film actors into TV. And so when that happened... The roles that I would get as like a lead in an episode, I would then be a guest star. And then the guest stars became co-stars. And it was just like, it just wasn't a feasible situation for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't finding the love for it anymore. It was like, I found myself acting the roles I wanted to act in my acting class. And I kept, you know, I never stopped studying. So at some point I just thought, yeah, I think I'm going to let this go because it's not bringing me the joy or is the Marie Kondo part of it. It doesn't spark joy for me anymore. And I transitioned to behind camera because I just love telling stories. That creator part of me has always been there. It still gets me revved up. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have more control if I'm on this side. (laughs) That's a joke. But At least now I'm creating my own projects. I'm going out there, you know, developing, pitching, selling, working on other people's projects, producing or directing. And I I love it. It's the same hustle. Mm -hmm. It's just I don't have to wear makeup now to work if I don't want to. And I like that part. Where are you most at home in that world? Like, what would you be doing if you could just do one part of that all the time? What part of that storytelling would you be doing? I'd be directing. And I'd be the producer developing and selling like creative stories. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do just want to thank you so much for being on and regaling us with stories about the show that I loved so much as a kid. I'm so glad. It was a great time in my life. I loved it. And it was a pleasure to meet you. And thanks for reaching out. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you. Bye. (laughs) 
I cannot say thank you enough to Maureen for being a part of this episode. She was truly such a delight to talk to, and I am very excited to follow along with all her projects moving forward. As always, friends, thanks also to you, not only for making it all the way to the end of this monstrous episode, but for continuing to show up and listen to this podcast each week. You're all just the best. I hope you'll join me again next week for another packed but not nearly as long episode. Until then, I'll leave you with the inspiring words of Sonora Webster from Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Manure just happens to be my specialty. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 